0: The world championship record is equaled. Lewis Hamilton wins the Turkish Grand Prix and is a seven-time champion of the world. Now
1: Hamilton's beginning his mission for title number eight. But does F1 need to be more competitive to drive up revenue? We'll talk to one of the bosses of Formula One and ask about the pandemic paddock, ethics, environmentalism and diversity in the sport. All on this edition of Sport Unlocked. Sport <laughs> Hello and welcome to the podcast, digesting the best of the week sports news with analysis and interviews. Later, we'll be crossing to Bahrain, to the paddock at the start of the new F1 season, to hear from one of the sports commercial chiefs. Also, we'll talk concussion, TV rights sales, FIFA's finances and Qatar human rights campaigns. Well, we've reached episode 10 of Sport Unlocked. Thank you everyone for listening. I'm Rob Harris and alongside me as ever is Martin Ziegler
2: how we doing yeah we um, it's the lights at the end of the tunnel as far as as what we may be concerned in in england um i've already got two five aside matches booked for next week with the the return of grassroots sport from monday the 29th i know there's a third wave in in the rest of europe um but i think at least for the time being I'm, I'm really looking forward to actually getting out and doing doing a bit of team sport
1: well I've actually been in a stadium in the last week although it was for England 5 San Marino nil hardly uh the most thrilling of matches uh Tarek Panj as well with us Tarek did you watch it or any of the World Cup qualifiers this week
3: um no uh I'm struggling with international football at the moment um these large empty stadiums none of the fixtures really jumped off the screen there was a a really good game apparently in 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 Turkey with um turkey winning four2 in quite a dramatic fashion wished I'd seen that one um but not really um looking forward to to the these world Cup qualifiers actually taking shape do you remember these are the last ones that are going to be competitive from Qatar onwards it's going to be just as easy to qualify for the world cup as it is to not qualify certainly if you're a european team uh with the expanded uh FIFA world Cup uh, to 48 teams from 2026. So, guys, if you're interested in World Cup qualifiers, fill your boots, because um, it's not going to be any more interesting than it is right now.
1: Well, at Wembley, there was no reference at all, really, to the fact the tournament's even going to Qatar, all the concerns. But we have seen in other parts of Europe, some teams at least, with some veiled references to human rights questions on Qatar. We had Germany, who lined up before their game with each of the letters of human rights on the tops of the players and we also saw Norway in uh, playing Gibraltar with human rights on their t-shirts as well.
2: FIFA made it clear that they're not going to um, take any disciplinary action from for, for a political statement, um, which is probably due to the fact they didn't actually reference Qatar directly. I mean, I think that when, when they were interviewed, the players made it no little secret that the, the issue they were talking about was the um, human rights of migrant workers in, in Qatar. Um, obviously, there's been a lot, a lot of focus on that. And um, But it's, I thought it was actually interesting that FIFA didn't do anything um, from that point of view, because it does actually make the, 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 the way open now for other teams to follow suit. So it'd be really interesting to see what happens over the next 18 months.
3: Yeah. Also, also, what's interesting is, um, I guess, the, the players, which ones you choose to highlight and which ones you don't. We had John Stones uh, at a press conference saying this is an issue that the players are willing to use their platform to talk about. You know, John Stones obviously plays for Manchester City, who are owned by um, Abu Dhabi, who have pretty much similar issues, uh, perhaps even worse than in Qatar right now. Because the one thing about the focus of the World Cup, it's pushed Qatar to some semblance of reforms. You also have um, Odegaard of, of Norway uh, when he's going to be back at Arsenal with Emirates emblazoned on his, um, on his shirt. It's, it's more than an airline. And then you have a, a load of Bayern Munich players in the Germany squad who um, are sponsored by uh, Qatar and Qatar Airways themselves? So it's a it's a complicated one, and the players are going to have to kind of walk a, a, a fine line, and they're going to be perhaps asked about this this um, dichotomy.
2: Yeah, I mean, for example, Erling Harland, who who one of the people who who wore the shirts with the Norway national team. I mean, back it only in the not a few months ago that he um had treatment for an injury in at the aspetar academy in qatar and was like did an interview there with absolutely saying how much he was looking forward to coming back to qatar and you know a few months down the line he's he's, he's wearing a t-shirt so a bit awkward
1: one things that did happen in qatar was the introduction of a minimum wage uh thousand qatari rails a month which what i think works out about uh 200 pounds so uh you know by certainly British standards, it's uh, not a very considerable amount considering the wealth of the country, but you know, they, they do point to uh, some improvements in human rights. Uh, and even I noticed the, the amnesty letter that they sent to FIFA this week was really quite vague in what it was asking for. It was basically asking for enforcement of the changes and not rolling anything back, wasn't it?
3: Yeah, I think that's really important. And I think that's right as well. They, they've had these rules. These are uh, rules coming into force over the last few years. But that enforcement piece is really, really important. It seems like, um, well, with anything, even some of the FIFA rules themselves, ethics rules, whatever you have, you can have the best rules in the world, but if you're not enforcing them, they kind of don't mean anything. And the thing with Qatar, it's such a sort of hierarchical society, stratified society. It has been difficult taking some of these um, big company owners, some of them royals perhaps, to task over not enforcing the rules that are in place in country. Um, and, and that's that's going to be hard. I think what's what's hurt is is this in recent times the Guardian article recently listing um, the thousands of workers that have died, and they're trying to separate it from the World Cup. To um, these are projects in Qatar not linked to the World Cup, but the argument I think is a fair one is a lot of these projects wouldn't be happening at all at this rate, at this speed in Qatar if there wasn't a World Cup. Um, that has to start at a certain date at a certain time. So you could link a lot of all of this to the World Cup and a lot of these deaths, unfortunately, too.
1: And if they had open inquests for every death in Qatar, then we'd have the information on all of them. I mean, there was quite an interesting statement from the Royal Belgium Football Association, which said that it expects FIFA to keep its finger on the pulse and to keep putting pressure on Qatar to ensure compliance with the amended Labour laws. But then it had this slightly odd part of the statement, which said... Um, paradoxically, Qatar is the only country in the region that has t- recently taken steps to improve working conditions under pressure from human rights organisations. And it's just not true. They've gone so far in praising Qatar that, you know, they ignore the fact other countries in the Gulf have at least said or implemented some form of labour changes. And and it's interesting they're able to say something that is just not true in a statement.
3: It shows how messy all this is and it will continue... To be up until up until the tournament and we move on I hope the, the interesting thing is what happens afterwards let's see and I won't hold my breath for this once the last ball is kicked in Qatar how much are people going to be looking at and focusing on you know what's happening over there it's probably a fair few people in Qatar hoping that this thing just takes place and, and moves on and they can get on with whatever it is they were doing
2: I mean I suppose the the argument is actually is has having had the World Cup. In Qatar, shone a light on labour practices practices within the whole region, and I think the answer to that is absolutely yes, it has. So, you know, they they may have um, won the World Cup by um, slightly uh, un- underhand means. Not I'm not saying that the bid committee themselves, but um, you know, Mohammed bin Hamam, for example, who was the FIFA member then at the time, um, has, has been stated by the u.s department of justice as having um been involved in allegedly um payments uh, into in in order to get, win votes so i think um but the fact they've now got the world cup and it's there is it, is it actually going to be beneficial for for all these people who were there in very very large numbers before the world cup from all different countries trying to make a living and living in absolutely terrible circumstances, maybe it has had a, a positive effect, not just for Qatar, but you know, people in Dubai, um, other, and other parts of other parts of the Middle East.
1: And of course, the World Cup is the main source of income for FIFA. And now we have a new financial report from them, which shows that there's a nine hundred million dollar insurance cover to protect against any cancellation of the Qatar tournament. That's because they expect to generate. billion dollars from the tournament and in this financial report from FIFA we've also had details of Gianni Infantino's presidential salary that was three million dollars in 2020 including a one million dollar bonus there's certainly cash to fund it despite pandemic relief payments to national associations reducing the FIFA reserves by 705 million dollars those reserves are still at almost two billion dollars and one man who earned a lot out of FIFA over the years was Set Blatter. His ban from the game was due to expire later this year but he's been hit with another suspension of six years and eight months taking him into his 90s and that's because Blatter and Jerome Valk who was his secretary general have been found to being awarded themselves huge contractual bonuses while they were at FIFA. So Set Blatter's basic salary in 2015 was $3 million, but that was topped up by an $11 million contractual bonus for the 2010 World Cup, and all these FIFA bigwigs also decided that Blatter should earn a $12 million bonus for the 2014 World Cup in Brazil. I
2: mean, uh, Set Blatter's bonuses were far and away of of $1 million, weren't they? I mean, we're... we're... (laughs) Oh, my dog's just barking. (laughs) He didn't
3: like that figure
2: either, did he, (laughs) Ziggs?
1: Well, we do actually have some barking news now on some other football finance. It's actually just coming in from Italy, where the Serie A TV rights have been awarded for the next three seasons to DAZN for €840 million a year. And they're calling it DAZN, one of the largest sports streaming deals in history. It squeezed out Comcast-owned Sky, although they could still come in for three of the games each weekend that can be shared with another provider. Tariq, this seems a pretty significant deal from DAZN. In the
3: end, the biggest check won out, but it hasn't been easy. A number of clubs wanted to stick with Sky, even though there was going to be less money on the table. For a, for a number of reasons. One, Sky has been a loyal partner all these years. It gives them a degree of certainty. It's someone they know. And for DAZN, there were some obstacles to overcome. There were lots of questions of whether it's it's got the ability to stream matches across the country at volume in a, in a place where the broadband network hasn't been great. There were issues of buffering, et cetera, but it looks like zone has been able to now convince a minimum of 14 of the Serie A clubs, a number that was needed to get the deal over the line that it can deliver, not only on um, getting the games across, but also on its financing. The company is an interesting one. It has been the one of the biggest buyers of sports rights across markets in Europe, in Japan, in the US as well, where it broadcasts boxing and martial arts sports, but it's not turned a profit yet. It's fact, it's losing huge amounts of money every year. The most recent results available, which are for the twenty-nine financial year, show it lost $1.3 billion. That's an enormous amount and, an, and a number it will want to turn around quickly. It's backed by the billionaire Len Blavatnik, but even with his largesse, even with his wallet, it cannot continue making losses at this rate. So yeah, this is a huge bet by zone on its future. There is speculation now that after signing these Serie rights, it will perhaps set the stage for um, a stock listing, um, an IPO. There's also been talk for, for more than a year that it plans to be gobbled up by one of the bigger television networks, perhaps. It has a, an interesting slate of of sports rights, and it also has Perhaps the best-in-class technology for what it does, streaming sports across um, different platforms. There is value in that, but be—it's uncertain what what's going to happen, uh, and 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 for some of those Serie A clubs and for people watching, that also is a bit of a red flag. There is a sense that perhaps now is not the time to take such a risk. You don't have to look very far for for a league, one of the big leagues, who have. Try to go with a new partner and come unstuck. Um, France, the 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 top leagues there. They signed a deal with Spanish company Media Pro. There were there were fist pumps. There were there was great excitement there because they got more than a billion euros per season. Uh, this was a seventy percent uplift on what they were getting from from Canal Plus, the, the 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 broadcaster that has been in lockstep with the league for two decades. A move away from canal and a move to this new company media pro but within two months of the the new season the new contract starting it collapsed media pro has now disappeared the rights had to be retendered the billion euros has 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 disappeared too The, the rights at least in the short term have gone to canal which rode to the rescue um unhappily and has the rights for the rest of this season following an emergency auction. And now the league is gearing up for selling its rights again in the future. There is no way that they will get anywhere near the billion euros that Mediapro got the company. It was also a huge embarrassment for Ligue 1 and the executives there. And it's it's unlikely that it will recover in in the near term or perhaps even in the medium term. So all eyes on Serie A and its, it's, it's deal with DAZN. Let's see if it if it works out. And if it doesn't, let's hope it isn't the catastrophe that we saw in France.
1: We've also had some more TV rights news this week. Uh, the English Football Association selling the rights for the first time to the Women's Super League. Previously, effectively, the broadcasters were just funding the cost. It's a package worth more than £20 million over three years with Sky Sports and BBC getting the rights. Crucial thing is Sky Sports going to be giving a lot of coverage around games but also the fact that the bbc won't just be putting the games that like they had previously only on their interactive services but on bbc one and two so for me away from the money it's more about exposure suddenly these games are going to be on the bbc's main channels which means actually they could be amongst the best rated women's football games in the world and also they could potentially in britain at least outrate some premier league games which are obviously only on their subscription tv i think
3: the money's good and fine, it's a good sign, but way, way more significant is this coverage. If it's on mainstream, I think it's almost on BBC One in particular, it's almost certainly going to be the most watched league in the world more than anywhere else, given that BBC One is this free-to-air nationwide channel, plus what Sky are talking about, an all-encompassing coverage similar to the men's game pre-match, post-match, etc. These, these, these players will become household names perhaps and I think significantly if there is finally this this, this big audience maybe we'll see um, fans going to the stadiums in in, in bigger numbers than we see currently I think even in the Premier League in some cases we're still talking about hundreds of, of people going to games on a weekly basis so you know you can't now say with this platform they're being given that they're they're not getting this chance to grow the game in a way that they, they deserve and one they, they have to run with. Now now it's a case of, right, the tools are there, crack on, do it and, and let's see the results soon. It, it's very exciting.
1: One of the things I discovered when going to Wembley for england San Marino was the new Amazon Fresh store that's open next door to Wembley where... You just walk in, pick up your products and walk out without ever actually, uh, interacting with anyone or, or, scanning anything. Of course, it's the latest sign of the expansion of Amazon on the high street and also Amazon expanding in sport as well, more rights, aren't they?
2: Yeah. So the, um, the, they're looking, um, very closely at the, the, the home nations rugby rights. So the six nations are selling the rights for the six nations tournament and the autumn internationals together. Um, so we have a sort of slightly unusual situation now, where there's going to be, they're going to be. It now looks the most what broadcasting industry sources think the most likely split is going to be Amazon um taking the autumn internationals and the terrestrial TV channels BBC and ITV keeping the Six Nations, which means BT and Sky Sports are, are sort of uh, have lost out. Um, I think there's a bit of a feeling at BT and sky that amazon gets a bit of a free ride and it's not seen so much as a pay tv series service um but i suppose for for rugby fans who are used to watching the six nations on terrestrial tv that would be very very welcome if that's going to remain which it now looks as though it is because i think politically it would have been quite difficult for that to have been to be sold off just to a pay tv platform And uh, with all that, what all that means about viewer numbers, participation um, and taking the game a bit further forward.
1: Well, taking Sport Unlocked a bit further afield now to the Gulf and joining us direct from the Formula One circuit in Bahrain at the season opening race weekend is F1's Director of Partnerships, Ben Pincus, to look ahead to the new season. Ben, welcome to Sport Unlocked. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Um, I apologize for any sound in the background. I'm at the racetrack and our first free practice has just started. Hmm. So what's it like in the pandemic era, going to the races, being around the races? It must be so different from from the normal times with all the sort of the liveliness around.
4: Yeah, no, it is. It's it's definitely very different. Um, It's um, yeah, I mean it, it's yeah, noticeable. Car parks are, are empty, and there's a, obviously a lot, lot less um, going on. But you know, it's it's the way we've we've got used to working. I was going to say,
3: does it feel more like it's going to sound funny? More like work because there's someone you know been to some of your paddocks, etc. And there's it's like a bit of a festival as well. The the atmosphere. There's all sorts of characters back in the day. You know, oh look, there's um, you know some musician there, a, a Premier League footballer over here, etc. It's, it's, it's suddenly the, the, the world's um, celebrities, athletes, you know, these A-listers are all kind of knocking uh, about while these elite Formula One drivers are preparing for, um, for the race of their lives.
4: Yeah, no, it probably, yeah, it's a great, um, a great analogy. It probably does feel a bit more like work. You've obviously got a, lo- a lot less going on. Um, so what, you know, what you lose, I guess, in, in sort of razzmatazz and energy from yeah, the outside world coming in. Um, you know, you you are actually functioning more as if you, you know, you're a more traditional sort of working environment. What things- um, so we're definitely, we're definitely a lot more efficient than we would be normally.
1: Yeah, but one of the paddock experiences often, even as when I'm there as media, you sort of be able to wander in and out of each motorhome. Some of it might be actually uh, tasting some of the culinary delights on offer as well as to chatting to people. <laughs> uh,
4: yeah, can't do that anymore,
1: mate. <laughs> when do you think that will return? Is, is there a sort of, moment in, in the calendar you're thinking it might look more normal
4: yeah we're we're um we're hoping um that we will have um we'll have fans back in portugal um so that's what for just over four weeks um yeah we seem yeah all the signals there are very positive for a restricted fan event um so that will you know that that will enable us to open up a lot more we'll, we'll still make yeah as a as a formula one entity and all the teams we will still maintain you know the bubbles and the restrictions around the bubbles um so it won't be that different an experience for us because we have to then continue you know, going to other races and other countries and ma- maintaining the protocols around the, around Safety to ensure our sort of ease of passage through other countries. So it won't probably make a massive amount of difference to us directly, um but you'll yeah you'll inevitably get the energy of of seeing crowds coming into circuits in the morning and as you leave in the evening, which will make a you know, massive difference.
1: How much of the transformation in terms of the image of F one in the last sort of few years changed the proposition commercially in terms of what you're going for? I mean, someone could almost say that. F1's gone a bit more woke now, the fact uh, really advocating environmental causes, the anti-discrimination as well. I see you know, a lot of 0% beer as well being uh, you know, increasingly sponsored. Is that is the dynamic? Exciting, isn't it?
4: Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I, listen, I think we're in an extraordinary place. Um, you know, I think it's the culmination of um, you know, three and a half, four years' worth of Liberty ownership. Um, I think over the course of those you know, three or four years, we've tried a lot of stuff out. Um, you know, probably much, you know, we've been a lot more experimental than, than we ever had been in the past. And we've figured out what works and what doesn't work. I think, you know, we've opened up a whole bunch of new markets, you know, the, the Netflix deal, um, you know, various other different content plays has enabled us to connect with audiences in different ways. You know, add to that, we've got a group of young, you know, new drivers in the paddock this year. Um, which you know suddenly make Max Verstappen look old. Um, we've got you know, what we did with virtual racing um, uh, beginning of last year around esports. You've got a new car coming in 2022. You've got you know wh- what you know what we did last year around you know supporting Black Lives Matters around um, you know messaging around stuff that you know maybe in the past we'd been a bit more sensitive about. Um, has has you know has done absolute, it's done extraordinary amounts for us. Um, you know, it, it genuinely feels to me like, you know, as somebody who's been in the business for only twelve months. It feels like all our stars stars are aligning. Um, and I, I you know I, I firmly believed when I started that you know all the ingredients were there. If we could get it together in the right order, um, we'd be sitting on a really really compelling proposition. And I'm pleased to say. You know partly by intention and partly by accident um, it feels genuinely like those stars are aligning and i if i look at the sort of conversations we're having now in the market versus the conversations we were having 12 months ago and and trying to sort of peel COVID a, away from that we're having very different discussions you know people are looking at us very differently i think this time last year you know people were interested in engage but sustainability was an issue Diversity was an issue. Inclusivity was an issue. These were all in, these were all important pieces for brands, yeah. um, and we weren't able able to talk to that particularly well twelve months ago.
3: Uh, ben, to to Rob's point though on on those social issues, and you, know, you touched upon them. You, you kind of have Bernie Eccleston sort of recently. He kind of doesn't believe in some of these things. Is is there um is there um no, we were in a kind of culture war they call it you know on social media etc with two sides to every argument etc even when perhaps there shouldn't be uh, another side to some of these issues do you do you have to be careful about that because it's probably i don't know there's probably people who get annoyed that sports is used as a platform for some of these causes. I mean, we know there are because they keep speaking up about it. Is that is that something you you you're, you're conscious of? And you think no, these are issues. These are important. And you know, if you if you're annoyed by it, we don't care.
4: Yeah, I mean, I, don't, I don't know that we don't care. But I think I think the first part is true. I think it, it's important, and and we've got a fan base, and we've got a you know we've got a, a voice. Um, and it, and we should be using that fan base. You know, we should be using that voice. Um, yes, there are obviously, you know, things can land well to some people, not so well to other people. But that shouldn't be a reason for not doing stuff. Um, yeah, there's a, yeah, there's a, sincer- a sincerity that, that that's, yeah, that's that's real um, about about you know the sort of gestures. Certainly, I've witnessed here over the last twelve months. It's not. You know, we're not, we're not doing it because we think we should do it. We're doing it because, we be, you know, we believe we should do it and we believe things should change. And, we're, you know, we're, we're here to grow our audiences. We're here to engage with new audiences, different audiences, existing audiences, and we think it's an important part of, um, you know, of, of the dynamics of our sport. We're very lucky to have, you know, athletes who represent different groups and we should definitely talk about that
1: is that particularly crucial in terms of engaging the young audience that you're trying to bring into the sport and also keep them watching the long races as well to actually make them feel like the sponsors, the commercial backers, the messaging around F1 reflects what they're talking about in their daily lives and, you know, and, 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 you know, the the, the way they they are living and thinking about things like electric and environmental causes as well.
4: Yeah, uh, yes, I think it is. I mean, I think there's two different points. Um, I think you know the, the, the i don't know that one's a bit more emotional than the other isn't it i mean you know sort of diversity inclusion you know inclusivity is is all quite emotional and tends to have quite a lot of emotional charge about it um and and we can talk to that in a slightly different way um you know we we recognize that yeah, as a sport you know we're not we're not as inclusive as we should be um and we need to do more about that and it's not just about attracting new audiences it's it's about you know, a fairer rep- representation, you know, you know, if you don't ask yourself these questions, you're never going to change. Um, so I think there's there's that at one end of the spectrum, and, and almost it's not necessarily the end of the spectrum, spectrum, but the sustainability piece is a bit more functional, um, a li- maybe a little less emotional, a little less charged. Um, you know, I think the way we do that is quite different. If you look at, And again, I've been, you know, um, overwhelmed by it over the last 12 months. You know, we have a motorsport group of 30 odd people that sit in the middle of the business and they work on the future of the business from a engineering and from an automotive perspective. And their ambition around a sustainable fuel sitting on a hybrid clean power unit is real. You know it's not serving you know it it, it's a real ambition and it, it will be achieved we're not doing it because it attracts pr attention or because it resonates in a particular way that's obviously you know a great benefit and maybe part of it but we're doing it because we think it's the right thing to do because we sit within a sport and and a sector that also believe in it and
1: um, the the other part of ethics is around things like human rights around the world and ethical sponsorship how, how much does that come into to the mind i mean you, you know you as f1 are always getting hit with human rights groups writing letters and talking about where you're hosting races and things like that how, how how do you take that into consideration when making all these decisions around sponsorships and where you're taking f1 to i mean you
4: you do you really do you know we we have You know we're we're a big public company um and a very public sport um and we we have to we have to look at everything um in detail and in the round and you have to take a sort of yeah you have to take a measured perspective on things um um you know and you try and make every decision you know in a sort of balanced in a balanced way as the best you can um you know, it, it's difficult, but I think it's difficult for everybody. Whether you're a sport or, you know, a large company moving into a new market, I mean, it's it's a
1: challenge for everybody to try and get that balance right. Lewis Hamilton now established as one of the great British sports stars of all time is going for an eighth world title this season. But how important is it for the F one product to have a competitive title race?
4: I think it's really. I think I think it's really important. I think it's an interesting actually, We were having this discussion in the car this morning. Um. And I don't, it's a funny one. I mean, you know, maybe you guys have got, have got a view on it as well. Um, but, you know, if you look at all other sports um, and the sports that, you know, that continue to grow, what you tend to see is you tend to see consistently strong performers, you know, entertaining year on year. And every so often we get a few little upsets. And those upsets could be Liverpool's current performance or it could have been Leicester a couple of years ago. But there is a yeah there is a consistent rhythm that people sort of I think draw a certain amount of comfort from, um, and I think you know I think to be honest it's a bit of that East Enders factor you know it, it's yeah it's dependable and predictable with an occasional upset and I sort of wonder whether sport is is sort of like that, so you need a certain I think people like like my sense is and I don't have any data to back this up but my sense is people like that sort of pack of you know, competitors at the top with the occasional surprise. Um, and, you know, the more occasion, yeah, you know, the, the more often that surprise is, the more engaged you could be. But if it becomes too often, it becomes a bit of a mess. You know, I think there's a there's a sort of an expectation that, you know, maybe Mercedes are going to have a tough start to the season and maybe there's, you know, a chance for somebody else. I don't know, we should probably have that conversation in halfway through the season. My feeling is uh, there's a lot of energy and excitement around the beginning of this
1: season and possibly more so than last year or maybe that's just me reading it wrong. And perhaps some of that excitement is created by the presence of Mick Schumacher, the 22-year-old son of Michael, making his F1 debut with Haas. Ben, thank you for joining us from Bahrain, giving us some great insight on where F1 is heading this season, commercially, on the track and trying to build new audiences too. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoy your weekend. Thanks, Ben. That's Ben Pincus, F1's Director of Commercial Partnerships, joining us from Bahrain. From the Middle East to Westminster now and to a hearing of the Digital Culture Media Sports Select Committee this week looking into head injuries in sport. And there was a pretty combative exchange between the committee chair, Julia Knight MP, and the FA's Head of Medicine, Dr Charlotte Cowie. It was all over night pressing on just how much the fa has invested on looking into head injury research the issues of dementia in later life which have caused so much concern let's take a listen at knight's frustration that he couldn't extract a figure out of dr charlotte howie how much have you actually budgeted as an organization
0: for research in the last year how much precisely
5: I don't know what our research budget is, um, but I think we have definitely made a commitment that th- we will go for the, you, the research project. You're the chief the medical officer. Tech- how
0: don't you know the research budget? How don't you know your research budget? You're coming in front of a committee. I know
5: the research budget. I know how much is... Re- is it because you don't want to say? Research.
0: Is it because you don't want to say what the research budget is? Because I cannot believe that someone as eminent as yourself, someone obviously at the top of the tree, so to speak, that you do not know how much the FA spends on this research in a year. I, I, I'm almost speechless. Are and you telling the truth? I
5: committed for the funds that we're already paying, so we're continuing to fund the field study. We're continuing to fund another study at Nottingham University. How much? A-
0: how much are you spending?
5: How much? We're spending exactly what we contracted with those people to spend. They asked for the money, and we, we gave them the uh, money. Um, it's not that we have said no; we can't afford anything more than that. And as I say, if, you, if we put this call for research out and, and the funds required are more, then it, it's completely up to us to fund that, however big it is, and to seek the money, the funding from you know from within football. Normally, you know, when when, um, like when we have
0: excuse me, normally normally when we have witnesses who, who frankly should know a particular figure. And we often suspect, frankly, that they know that figure, but they're too embarrassed to say what that figure is. YouTube, a uh, pretty good recent example of that. What we do is we let them off the hook, and we say, "Will you write to us as a committee? I'll just put on record: I'm, 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 I'm staggered, and I think this committee is staggered, that that you have not come here today furnished with the information in terms of how much you're spending on research in the last year. I think it's completely unacceptable. Now." I'm not blaming you as a person. I'm sure that you you have a very great deal to deal with at the FA. I mean, most people do, frankly. But the situation is that you're in front of a parliamentary committee. We've just been listening to people today, young athletes, who talk about their consonants, who talk about the fact that they're fearful for the future, and they're worried that they're going to die as a result of their sport. And you are seriously telling this committee that you do not know how much the FA is spending on research into this topic in the last year. I just, I, I, that isn't actually a question, that's just a statement, frankly, and I am absolutely appalled. So yes, we'll give you the off the hook, go and write to us and everything else like that, and we'll publish the letter, precisely, but I don't believe that. I just think you're too embarrassed, and I can't blame you, because I think I'd be embarrassed. Can I, I'm
5: sorry, can I just Yeah, say please. That of um, a current current call for research, there genuinely is... Um, no funding limit that we have set on this. We simply want it to be the study that answers our research question. Um, and I can genuinely put my hand on my heart and say, we have agreed that there is not an amount of money that we will set for this. We just want to understand what is the best study for us to fund and We will take external advice from that. And we will try um, if we well, need to get Well, th- th- it. thank you
0: for that. And I, I do appreciate yeah, sorry, that yeah. and I appreciate your, your good intentions. I do genuinely. I, I don't wish to be un, un, unpleasant in that respect, but you
1: know, I, I'll give you a, the, the external opinion. Julia Knight MP really haranguing the FA's Dr Charlotte Cowie there. Martin, was it acceptable from the DCMS committee chair?
2: Um, actually, I think there was a, there was a, a bit wrong in that committee in in um, the treatment of the FA's head of medicine Charlotte Cowie. She was sort of put on the ropes um, over over concussion, which is which which is. Fine, you know, you can ask challenging questions, but actually, I mean, I look back on, at the the video. She was interrupted 21 times in 13 minutes. Um, one of her answers was responded to with blah blah blah, and three of the MPs called her by her first name, and then referred to the other um, scientists on the on the as the witnesses by their professional titles. And one of the Heather Wheeler even referred to her as love. Um, so. It's interesting. This I, I put this to the select committee, and I think they um, they haven't quite apologised, but they say they they are inviting Dr. Cowie to respond with her experiences, so that they can improve the process for witnesses in the future. So, uh, what I think the the actual news that came out of it was that um, the FA's independent task force, which is a, a group from across different sports and science um, have recommended reducing heading and training um, which has been it's been talked about as a possibility but for the adult game the the fact this is a formal recommendation that that came out for the first time to uh, on uh, at the select committee and as a result of that it also then emerged that the premier league is carrying out a study um, where players are going to wear mouth guards which are going to register the impact of headers so um, you can actually see if it's a, a long distance um, kick, one that goes really high in the air, a short range one, the speed of the ball, all these things when the player heads the ball, the mouth guard will register the force of that impact and that will feed into the, uh, the when it comes to deciding what sort of heading should be restricted in, in training. Um, because you know if it's low impact ones and you may say there's 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 perhaps little wrong in, in doing that sort of training but if it's long goalkeepers kicks and the balls coming down from a great height then maybe that is one to avoid
1: well final sport and unlock let's turn to Brazil and a rule change that perhaps many managers in the game worldwide would like to see introduced Tarek explain all
3: yeah this was really interesting uh, Brazil uh, has this kind of higher and fire attitude to a level that I've not seen in, in many top leagues um, elsewhere. I remember a time, I think it was around 20, 2014, where I think after game nine, uh, week nine, more than half the teams in the league had fired their coach. Uh, so, so this week, the, the Brazilian um, FA said that they voted through. Uh, teams in Serie A, top league, can only hire two coaches Because there's a situation where some are paying four or five different coaches at the same time. Santos, uh, Pele's former club, Neymar's former club, paying seven currently, former coaches right now. That's millions of uh, Reis dollars, whatever they're paying these guys in, that is wasted. And in terms of forming teams as well, each coach comes in and buys the players that they want. It's a total fiasco. So they've decided we need a bit more um, rationality here. And yeah, if you, fire more than, if you fire the second one, the person that takes over has to come from within the squad. You can't hire someone else. Equally, a manager can't coach more than two different teams per season either. I think it's um, a sign of how crazy things are in Brazil, but perhaps the right thing to do.
1: Great, Tarek. Thanks a lot for that. And Martin, for all your insights as well. Great chatting as always. And it was also brilliant to hear straight and direct from the F1 paddock in Bahrain ahead of the new season there. And thank you all for listening to episode 10 of Sport Unlocked. If you're enjoying us, really great if you could rate, review, and subscribe to us on whichever platform you get your podcasts on. Any thoughts, tweet us at Sport Unlocked. Also email sportunlockedpod at gmail.com. For now, thank you as ever and enjoy the sports viewing in the days ahead. Goodbye.